This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. For many consultants and executive coaches, writing is a key element of their marketing strategy. Publishing in leading periodicals or even publishing a book helps to position the professional as an expert in people's minds. When writing works as it should for your consulting or coaching practice, it leads to speaking engagements, media exposure, and more visibility in industry channels. Ultimately, it should contribute to landing more business. But to successfully do this, you need to be clear about your objectives and put some resources towards writing, editing, and publishing your ideas. Today, we are talking with Rose Hollister, a consultant who specializes in business performance, onboarding, as well as leadership and team development. In addition to being published in Forbes and the Harvard Business Review, Rose recently co-wrote a piece on making cultural changes in your business for MIT's Sloan Management Review. Also, Rose has self-published a book called Nobody Told Me, a behind-the-curtain look at the unwritten rules needed to advance in one's company and career. Rose is here to discuss how she made writing a key piece of her consulting and coaching practice and to share insider tips on getting published in leading publications. Welcome, Rose. We are so glad you joined today, and we just know this is going to be such a rich conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. But before we dive into this fascinating interview, Dave and I want to share where we've made progress this week. Dave, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I don't remember who goes first on these anymore. I don't either. I think I'll go first just because you're always first on the episode, on the words of the episode. Okay, awesome. You go. You have these brilliant words that I've never heard of. All right. So my progress is we had uh, my son, my oldest son has a girlfriend, brought her home for the first time. And I would say the progress is right before she left... We're sitting on the couch, whole family's hanging out. And so I put the question to her. I said, hey, okay, on a scale of one to 10, what do you think? What kind of weekend did you have? And she didn't say anything. I said, well, why don't you do it on a scale of one to 37? Because that way we won't know quite what the percentage is. She goes, oh, no, 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 I can do it. She goes, it's 9.5. And so I said, oh, a 9.5. She goes, yeah, it was great. So anyway, and then we got the word from Christian later that she had a good time. So that's progress because I wasn't a jerk. And uh, not that I would have been a jerk, but you never know. So I think that's progress. I don't know if it'll move the ball up the field in terms of the relationship, but I'm happy that uh, she had a good weekend. That's progress. What do you think she enjoyed about the weekend? Did she say anything like, wow, this is so different than my family or we never do this or it's, I know that you said that she's an only child and your family is one of four children. So was she shocked by the noise, all that stuff that you were thinking about? <laughs> we were worried about that. I mean, we're kind of loud and proud. I mean, you can, uh, you know, you can hear swearing, you know, at the Thanksgiving table, <laughs> you might, um, you know, you might see Christian and my old, my oldest son and my youngest son, who's 21, might see them wrestling. Uh, the dogs are everywhere. So it's kind of chaos. So I was really worried. She came from this, you know, this home in which it's just her. So either she liked it or she's lying. So we'll see. Anyway, I think it's progress that she uh, is still 
as of today, still with Christian. So yeah, that is progress. All right. How about you? <laughs> Enough for me. Well, we were in Colorado for the holiday and we traveled home on Saturday. We left at 3.30 in the morning because we had to get um, Jerry's, my husband's brother to the airport in Denver. And we were in Colorado Springs. So we, we left really, really early, which was all right. I thought, oh, we'll be home around, you know, eight o'clock. I thought we're going to make good time. But on the way to the airport, our truck, we took the truck so I could pick up stuff for my vintage biz on the way there and back. But the truck wouldn't get out of like the second or third gear, whatever it is. It's an automatic. It just was at these incredibly high RPMs. And my husband had been fiddling with the cruise control. And so um, he thinks that the part that he put in messed with the the shifting, but we couldn't stop and replace it then because we had to get his brother to the, the airport. Long story short, because of that and the high RPMs, one of our belts, the serpentine belt and the Ooh. something pulley went out. It just like shredded and it broke. Yeah, and so we yeah. were four miles out of Kearney, Nebraska at a rest area and the tow truck came. And because my husband always travels with tools, he was able to swap out the part and it put us behind probably about an hour and a half or so. It wasn't too bad, but it was a couple extra hours. But all I have to say is I didn't get negative. I stayed positive during it all. <laughs> I didn't panic. And we just all worked together. My son was with us and we all worked together to get home. We all driving. Turns and so anyway, no what, negative self-talk or no or, negative. I kept it really positive. I called the tow truck company. I was on the phone trying to help out. So anyway, it's good teamwork. That's a positive focus. Or the, <laughs> the that's great. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. That's real progress. But we got in like at 1.30, so it was a long day, like 20 hours, 21 hours on the road. It was long. I never want to do that again. (laughs) Rose, do you have any area that you've made progress that you'd like to share our audience? I think that I tried something different this year, and I ordered my Thanksgiving dinner from someplace instead of spending all Wednesday and Thursday cooking. And so... It was really interesting to like be able to go do something with my daughter on Wednesday and with my husband Thursday morning. And, you know, Thanksgiving Day is still a lot of work, but to have somebody do a lot of pieces of it. And, I, and my husband said, we are never cooking the whole thing again. So oh. it was an experiment. It's not your own. Like it's not, you know, the stuffing doesn't taste like you make it or your mother made it, but it's really nice to not be doing all that and It was enough in what we bought that we ate some of it Wednesday night and some of it Friday night, plus the Thanksgiving. So it was an interesting experiment. I'll tweak it, but I will do it again. That's (laughs) awesome. It really allows you to focus on the people then. I mean, I I was with my in-laws and they were in the kitchen for like three days straight and it was just exhausting for them. And I don't know if they enjoyed themselves. I mean, we were lucky we got to enjoy it because of their hard work. But so how neat that you got to spend time with your family. That's that's really important. I may do that when I have to do Thanksgiving on my own. (laughs) All right. So like we said, we wanted to talk about your writing life and how you've used it to help your your professional practice. So we want to first understand your background. You've worked in some large companies, including Equity Office at McDonald's Corporation. Can you tell us a bit about your work at McDonald's and how you ended up to where you are today? One of the things I wanted to share is that my very first job after babysitting was writing. I grew up in a very small town that had a very small town newspaper. Hmm. And my first job was writing for the newspaper. And I got paid a dollar per printed inch. So I've literally been writing since I was 15 for money. 
I was at Equity Office. I went out and started my own consulting firm. And in the first year of my consulting firm, McDonald's became a client and they asked me to write a coaching course for them and then teach it. They asked me to write a change course for them and then teach it. And then they invited me to be part of the faculty for their high potential director position. So I did that for a number of years. And then they asked me to come in and run the Leadership Institute. Many people have heard of Hamburger University. That's the arm of McDonald's that takes care of developing the managers at the restaurant level. But Jim Skinner, who was this first CEO that I worked under, really said, we have to develop our senior leaders. So our officers and directors, our senior directors. And he was the one behind the Leadership Institute. David Mm -hmm. Small was the first leader of the Institute, and I was the second. And the Institute's charge was to develop the executives across 120 countries. So that was directors, senior directors, and officers across 120 countries. And so we did everything from when they were new to position, we had an in-position curriculum, and then we had high potential programs. And I was over the Leadership Institute. So we developed courses, we facilitated, we partnered with outside vendors to bring things in. And then at different points, depending, I worked, um, I was there seven years. I was under five bosses and three CEOs. And the last CEO I was under really said, we've got to help communicate what our culture is now. So one of the last projects I did at McDonald's was, what is the culture of McDonald's now? And then we rolled that out across the globe. And so the, the fascinating thing about being at McDonald's was just the opportunity to have a global impact on thousands of people. Wow, that's incredible. And ha- how long were you with McDonald's? Um, as a consultant, three years, and then internally, seven years. So 10 total. That's amazing. So much experience. What made you decide then to, to leave McDonald's and start your own coaching practice? Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? So what I say is I'm a builder and I like to build more than I like to maintain. And I also am always looking for the new mountain and the new challenge. And so there was a decision made by the third CEO that he really, Steve Easterbrook, really wanted to put a pause on executive development and he wanted to assess the leaders that were in place to figure out whether they were the right leaders for the future of McDonald's. And so they put a pause on executive development for about a year to two years. And at the point they decided to do that, I decided that it was time for me to go do something new. And so it was time to go. And I'd I'd already had my own consulting practice. They asked me to close it down to go to McDonald's. So then I left McDonald's and started another consulting practice. (laughs) It's like coming home. So can you tell our audience before we get into your writing life, just a little bit about what a Dana life of an executive coach and a consultant looks like? So because of COVID, I am like everyone else on camera all day. So in any given day, I'm really focused on four different things. So about half of my practice is executive coaching. So I work with senior leaders who have been given a coach to partner with them to make progress in some areas. So some of them, like one of the clients in the last year was a brand new CFO to a $10 billion business. And he'd never been at that level before. You know, all the people I coach, they're talented, they're smart, they're capable, they've done well. They they need to make some kind of elevation to something new and different. Hmm. I 
coach a lot of people who are in new positions. So right now I have somebody who's a new president of a division. I have somebody who's a new leader in a global business. I have somebody who has been asked to take on and create a strategy for her company's AI business. I have somebody who really was a little rough around the edges and got some tough feedback and needed some help in how you make some of those changes. I have some people who are in senior positions, but want to go to the next level and need some help to make that jump. So that's the executive coaching side. And basically we set goals. We're on the phone for an hour, um, sometimes every week, sometimes every other week. And we are making very tangible progress on our goals. I also consult one of my calls today will be with a leader of a large distribution center. And I am working with his top 25 leaders about how do you as a team align in how you get work done. They're very siloed and people are going rogue and they really need to get better aligned. So we ran one session about eight weeks ago. We'll run our next one in February. So we're now starting to plan for that February session. Um, I also do leadership development. So tomorrow I'll be on the phone with a client and I'm their facilitator in their high potential director program. And mm. that is a program that basically we started in September and that will go until May, five different sessions across the year. And so we're planning and designing that. And then I facilitate that. You're really about helping people make progress, just like Dave and I talked about at the beginning, but in a much more <laughs> impressive, professional Sophisticated, sort of way. <laughs> strategic way. That's right. So, Rose, you made all these transitions in life and you have a writing life and you've always loved writing. Can you tell us a little bit about when you started to make writing a part of your professional life? How did that happen? And can you tell us a little bit about your journey to that? To start, really, I grew up in farm country of Ohio and I didn't know anybody in corporate America. I knew one doctor at church, I knew one lawyer at church. You know, it was a farming community. And, and so, when I got to Chicago and I started working in these corporate environments, I had a lot to learn. So first it was, what am I learning? And then when I was at equity office, I was VP of learning and development. And I started using my train time to just capture key things that either I was learning or that I wish the team I was managing already knew. I had somebody who just thought it was okay to never show up for company events. And so something in Nobody Told Me is you can not show up sometimes, but sometimes you need to show up for company events. You know, something nobody told me, but I figured out these really aren't all optional. Or that it is absolutely essential that you get along with your peers. And what does that mean? And how do you do that? And how do you make everybody smart, not just yourself? So I really started using this train time to just capture this. And the challenge was getting it over the finish line because Equity Office was a Fortune 500 company. When I left that and did consulting, I was also, you know, I was a mom of two young kids. I'm married. I was also teaching at Northwestern in the graduate program. Then I went to McDonald's, another, you know, global travel, Fortune 500 company. So the, the making the time for it was really hard. And so I had all these bits and pieces and Dave gets who I've known for a long time, when I left McDonald's, he said, get her done. And, and so I really, uh, I liked the fact that Dave had thrown down the gauntlet. I left August 1st, and by August 31st, the manuscript 
as it was, was done. Now, it took a while, obviously, to get it from manuscript to published, but the manuscript in its, in its first final version was done. This really wonderful idea about focusing on the time you have, the train time, and so many people are stuck in this, this space in life where they're, they're, it's crowded, they don't have time. And what you're telling us is you used the time, the little bit of time that you had to just start putting ideas down. And it wasn't formal. It wasn't, you know, this is my writing time, but you just started to use the time that you had. And I love that. I love that idea of train time and also just dumping down all the stuff that was in your head. And that led to a, a really incredible book. So I think that there's some great principles here for our, for our listeners. I just wanted to explain to our audience that doesn't live in Chicago, Rose lives in the Western suburbs. And so when she worked in equity office, how long was the train? So you took the Metra. How long, right. how long was Depending the train? Depending on which ride? train, somewhere between 40 and 55 minutes. Every day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Every day. Yeah. So that's, that's just a great discipline. I think the principle there is you most of us are not going to have these big chunks of time that are just laying around waiting for us to start writing. Rose, you wrote the book, Nobody Told Me, which is a book for people that are right out of college. I was thinking about that book for someone the other day. And one of the things that cracked me up, you have all these, I think is at 129 tips. And one is don't get drunk at the company party, which I thought, you know, that's such a, you know, you would think that that would be patently obvious, but it's not. So this, I just want to put a little plug in for the book because it's just so delightful and it's just little chunks of content. And, and I think as you think about how you wrote that book, as you wrestled with the structure, did, did you originally think it was going to be more of a long form narrative? When did you come to the idea that it should be just a series of tips? It was really because I'd written it piece by piece. So, okay, I saw somebody be really inappropriate at a company party. And literally that came, um, there was a woman who had drank too much and then, and the story is in the book. And then she went home that night and started sending us all, I don't, um, either voicemails or emails. And so we all come in Monday morning and we're thinking, oh my gosh, we can't trust this person as a consultant if they can't manage themselves because this is highly inappropriate behavior. And, and so, you know, a lot of the, the 129 rules are based on things that I saw somebody do. And it's like, please don't do this. <laughs> this will not help you. And, and it's funny because a friend of mine is uh, currently, he's working on Wall Street, he's 24. And in his internship, there was somebody at the cocktail party that got rip-roaring drunk. And you're thinking, you're smart enough to be on Wall Street. You've got this internship, but you're not smart enough to not drink too much. So a lot of it came from just things that you're, you're kind of cringing, going, please don't do this. Or, you know what? It would really help you if you did this instead. That book is such a delight uh, because I love that you can just dip in and then dip out. And so it is the perfect book, I think, for your 22-year-old or 24-year-old. So you also co-written and you've written, I think a lot of people would look at you and say, you've written for the Harvard Business Review. You've written for MIT's, I think it's Sloan Review of Management. Talk about how you've become a co-writer and what is that process like to co-write with somebody for these really significant publications? 
So I got to know Michael Watkins when I was at McDonald's. And Michael wrote a book called The First 90 Days 20 years ago. It is a bestseller year after year after year. And, and Michael is just the consummate writer. I think in 2021, he's written and been published over 12 times. And so he just, he, he, has, he runs a consulting firm and he just loves to write. And he and I got to know each other and started talking and we started working together and we started kicking around ideas. And so the first Harvard Business Review article, which is too many projects, it's here on the, um, on the back, on the wall behind me, we were at a client site. We were sitting there in the waiting room and started talking through ideas. And he liked this idea. And I came home and I sat down and did the first version and sent it off to him. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And because Michael is a former Harvard professor, he's been published in HBR a number of times. When Michael sends an article, they look at it and they, <laughs> they are interested. And, and so I really appreciate Michael's willingness to partner with me. I, as I thought about this question in coming to talk with the two of you, part of it is you have to get rid of your own ego that my way of conveying this message is the only right way. So the one I just did for MIT Slow Management Review, there are four of us. I did the initial 3,000 words, but then I sent it to somebody who changed it, who sent it to the, now the, the next writer who changed it, who sent it to the next writer who changed it. And then you send it to the editors and they want something different. So you have to be free enough and comfortable enough that my ideas are in here and I have to be flexible enough to partner with others when they take out a paragraph you loved or they say it another way or they don't love an example that you love. So it's a partnership and kind of like, you know, other good relationships, it can't be my way all the time. And so it, and it's also that the, the revision and the addition to it just makes it better. And so Again, for both of these, um, the MIT Sloan and the first HBR article, I wrote the first draft, but there were lots of revisions. And so you just have to be okay that you're going to rewrite a lot before it gets over that finish. And I would imagine you lose your sense of voice because there are so many different voices, right? I mean, part of that revision process is it becomes a little bit more, more neutral. Is that a safe word to say? Because you're trying to incorporate all these other voices. So it may be difficult. Especially with the one with four, Melissa. Yes. Yeah. With two, I can still look at parts and know exactly where I wrote that paragraph. You know, it's like, I wrote this paragraph. I know where I was sitting. But when you have four, there's so much revision that your voice is not nearly as strong and you've got to be okay with that. You know what I love about you, Rose, and your example here for our writers is that you were given this opportunity and you went home and you immediately jumped on it. You didn't like hmm and ha and think, oh, should I write? Or maybe tomorrow. You just went and did it. And it sounds like you did that for both of them. And I think there's something so valuable in that. Like when you have an opportunity, jump on it and just do the hard work and don't, don't dilly-dally. I love that. I think it's such a wonderful example. It's what do I have energy around? I had a lot of energy around this too many projects. We had a lot of energy as a team around the culture piece. And, and so I've done another HPR piece on onboarding and it was reflective of some consulting work that I had done. And so 
it's also taking that moment. I just, um, I sent a few things off to Michael Watkins recently about how do you onboard your new boss? You know, in this great resignation, lots of people are going to have new bosses. Well, how do you onboard your new boss? It fits the time, it fits the energy. And, and so it's also when I have something that I'm interested in, sit down and do it. Six months from now, I might think it's a B, not an A, but at least I got it down and then I can start fine tuning it. So Rose, you're a great model for the professional who wants to make writing a part of their life. And uh, you've done it publishing for publications. You've done it in writing a book. And obviously you do a ton of writing in your own work, developing curriculum and programs and different things. So once you publish a piece like in the Harvard Business Review or MIT's uh, uh, Review of Management or Management Review, how do you use that piece in your marketing? So in if I sent you an email today, there are links in my signature to a podcast that I did for Harvard, to an article that I did for Harvard, to a whiteboard that I did for Harvard. So I don't have everything there that I did. Probably need to update it and get it to my website that does have everything. But I would say that it's there every time I send an email. I would also say with like the MIT Sloan this summer, um, when it came out, I let my clients know. And then MIT Sloan had an email that they had sent out featuring the article. And so what I would do is send that email to clients and just say, just, you know, wanted to share something that was recently published on culture and change thought you might enjoy reading this. So I forwarded what they had created in that way. Also, of course, I put it on LinkedIn and send it out in that way. And, and so what I'd say is that I use it in multiple different forms with the Too Many Projects, which was you know listed on the cover of Harvard Business Review. There were people that I sent a tangible magazine to. I started a client last summer and they wanted to meet face-to-face. -face. And so I brought them an HBR magazine. I brought them a copy of the book. And, and so sometimes I give it to them tangibly. Sometimes I send it on a link. Sometimes I just make it a passive. So I'd say that I use it in many different ways. So this may be a, a little brass. I don't know. Has it really changed your, your, your practice at all, all this writing? I mean, I think that um, a lot of consultants, coaches, professionals think that writing this book is suddenly going to make them just boom with business and it's going to change them dramatically. What, what's the reality behind writing and what it can actually do for you and your, and your practice? I would say that I, for example, I have somebody that I will be doing a, what they call chemistry call with tomorrow, somebody who is a senior leader at a major organization and this leader will be deciding who they're selecting for their coach. Somewhere in that conversation that'll be about a half an hour long, I'll let the person know that I've been published in Harvard Business Review, I've been published in MIT Sloan, and that I've taught at Northwestern, and that I've worked at McDonald's. So if you let people know the things you've done, there's brand cachet, in those things. So somebody decides that she's, she might have more credibility because she's taught at Northwestern, worked at McDonald's, published in these things. So what I would say is that it gives you a little 
extra credibility. Now, has it changed my consulting practice? No. Does it change everything? No. Does it add credibility when you're talking to someone? Absolutely. This is a follow-up question. How much of the, especially the book, did you write because you wanted to write a book and help people? And how much of it was because it's good for building credibility? Was it like 50-50, a (laughs) 30-70? You know, because I started the book almost 20 years ago, it was just time to get it done. And literally the book went live and I had broken my kneecap. And so the book was done and it hadn't gone live yet. So it went live within the week after I broke my kneecap. So that hindered my ability to market it just a little bit. COVID impacted my ability to market it. So I wanted to get my thoughts down. And so I'm thrilled I did it. And I'm thrilled with every... It, it, for me, there were just dreams I had. Get published by HBR. Bucket list for me personally. You know, so I'm just thrilled that Harvard found something I thought worthy of being published. Yeah. And, and so for me, I wanted to get the thoughts down and doing it in different capacities because I didn't have an audience that, you know, a major publisher was going to publish my book. You know, you needed an audience, a following. It just wasn't something I was spending time on. So that's why self-publishing of the book made sense. But then the publishing of the articles, I have elected to do more publishing in journals versus self-publishing with articles because there is an avenue there to get published by more major publications. And so I elected to do it in that avenue. I love communicating thoughts that other people find helpful. What were some of the biggest hurdles you had to overcome when you were self-publishing? There are so many things that keep people from self-publishing. They think it's too big to take on on their own. It's not going to be a professionally done piece. Can you talk about some of the hurdles that you faced and how you put out a piece that you're really proud of? Well, I would say that my, my biggest hurdle was ignorance. I didn't know how to do anything. So I've got this manuscript, but I don't know how to take it from manuscript to, to published. And I needed what, and, and, I, and I told Dave this at the time, I needed a Sherpa who could guide me through the process. because, And that's why I personally love the concept of Journey 66, because people like me have, have thoughts, but they don't know how to take those thoughts and get them over the finish line. and you want somebody who's done it before. So you don't want to be learning it the first time and making all rookie errors. So having somebody like Dave come beside me and say, okay, next step is this, next step is this, do this, do this, do this. That's why I love Journey 66. And and it's also, it's the community that helps you learn. And it's also the, okay, I'm not just writing on my own there's somebody I've got to deliver a piece to. My editor needs this. My editor needs me to turn it around. I've got to make decisions. So it also, by having a community um, around you post-manuscript, it helps you continue to make progress. I love that idea of accountability. It's it's so important. So many people don't get, the, myself included, I don't get things done unless I've told somebody I'm going to do this and you're going to have it by such and such a date. I'm a, you know, the ultimate procrastinator. So um, I love that, that you've found community to help you get this done. 
That's fantastic. What about in the post-publication? You said it was released during COVID and you had this, this medical concern with your knee. How did you do PR for the book? And I know you were limited, but what were some of the things that you did to promote it? Well, one of the things I did is really utilize my network as reviewers. So I knew people at a number of major organizations. And so I had them write reviews. And so, for example, there's a one of the reviews is written by Marina Davis. She's at CBiz. And, and so part of it was tapping into my network on the reviewers first. And so then the reviewers liked the book. And in fact, Marina recently sent me an email saying, I just referred your book to a person at this company. And, and so inviting other people to be aware of it before it even came out was one piece. Then there was a woman I knew who wanted to do a, a um, book signing event. And so we did a book signing event. And then I started really when I'm working with clients, if I think it's the right population, I might ask them to purchase a book for everybody in the session. I have decided to send um, the book to different leaders that I work with. There was somebody who was a very senior leader at McDonald's who really recently went to um, Dunkin' Donuts, and he's now um, a very senior leader at Dunkin' Donuts. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to send him the Harvard Business Review article and the book. And so you know, just letting people know that it's there. I would say I'm pretty much a passive marketer versus an active marketer, but I continue to let it be a part of my consulting practice. I just think that's a, that's a great end to uh, this episode because I think that that really is why you write, right? I mean, there's, there's the why, like these deep things, it's part of who you are. And, but for you, who's as a professional, you write and it becomes a part of what you do. And I love, I love the idea of it's, you know, you you have this person who's a senior leader at Duncan. And so you, so you send it to them, right? I mean, that that's how, that's how credibility builds in small ways over time. I heard uh, something the other day on a podcast that like the CMO of BMW, they have all this advertising, they know it takes them take someone four years to make a decision to buy. I think it was either BMW or Mercedes-Benz. I'm not sure which one, but they don't know which brick in the wall. They don't know which piece of advertising is the one that pushes someone over the edge, so to speak, to, to purchase it, right? To purchase the car. And because they, you know, there they talk about the customer life cycle. But I think even in a, in a coaching practice and a consulting practice, the writing is one of those bricks in the wall, right? And it's one of those pieces that gives you credibility. And if you make writing a part of your life, this enables you to have this really important piece to help you build and sustain your practice. So I, I just love, uh, I love what you've said today. Thank you so much, Rose, for sharing with us and our audience today. So many nuggets. I love that idea of train time. and <laughs> Yeah, train <laughs> so, time is great. And just jumping yeah. on a project, you know, not waiting. Yeah. I love that. I, there's so many great things for people to take away from this. But before we officially say goodbye, Dave and I want to go to our word of the episodes. Words of the episode, excuse me. I always want to say singular and there are two words. I'll go first, Dave. And right. my... My word is diffident, which is modest or shy because of lack of self-confidence. And I was thinking you could describe a person as diffident. 
obviously, um, but as we like to say, it would be better to show diffidence, you know, shyness, because I've been saying the girl was diffident, but I was thinking you could maybe use it to personify an inanimate object, like the diffident daffodil didn't poke out of the ground because it was, um, it was afraid of being lost in the sea of tulips, something like that, you know, so there's a way to use it to personify inanimate objects. So I kind of like using it in that way. So Melissa, can I just add to that? Yeah. I think when you decide to write, you can't be diffident because you have to decide that you have a voice and that you have something worth reading. And so I like how your word relates to what we've been talking about today. That is such an awesome application. Thank you, Rose, for being here today for that. That's a great one. You can't lack self-confidence. You can't be shy about your your expertise. Yeah, that's so true. You can't be diffident. All right, Dave, what's your word of the episode? So mine is quiescent. Uh, quiescent, it has to do with being in a state or period of inactivity or dormancy. Sometimes you might feel like in winter, there's, you have this, you're, you're, you're in a sense, in a sense, quiescent. So, but I I need to read this. This comes from Mary Oliver, you know, the great uh, poet who's now gone. I think she died a year or two ago. Uh, But this comes from her book Upstream in which she talks about a spider that's killing a cricket. So here we go. At length, in 20 minutes, perhaps, the cricket lay utterly quiescent. And then the spider moved in with the gentle and certain of motions to the cricket's head its bronze visor-like face. Again, surely and with no hesitation, the spider positioned her body, her mouth once more at some chosen juncture near the throat, the spinal cord, the brain. That's awesome. Do you know what I heard when you said quiescent in that sentence is that it has so much assonance and it's one of those words that kind of reflects the meaning because it's kind of like the sound and that was a very kind of slow, quiet um, scene that was being built there. So I, you got to believe that she chose that word for a purpose and not just haphazardly. So I love that example. Quiescent. It's, it's wonderful, a wonderful word. (laughs) It's so wonderful to read prose or more of an essay that is written by a poet who, mm-hmm. you know, typically has shorter, uh, shorter phrases and stuff. And, and that's how she writes. And it's just so rich to read it really is. But if you look at that, Dave, that is like one long sentence. It has a semicolon and then lots and lots yeah. of um, commas. So interesting. So Dave, before we close out the episode with Rose, can you tell us a little bit about what people can find on the Journey 66 website? Two things. One is if you jump on the site, you can sign up for Tipster and a little window pops up. And that is our weekly email. Uh, we provide tips just to anybody who wants to get them. This last week, we talked about adding dialogue to your writing, whether you're writing nonfiction or you're writing a memoir. In fact, a lot of dreary consulting and coaching books are dreary because they don't really know how to tell a story and how to add dialogue and create dialogue or invent it. Uh, And so we talk about that. So this next week, actually, I'm going to follow up on that and talk about another another aspect of dialogue. So that's one thing you could do. The second thing is if you jump on the site, the homepage, you can take a quiz and we give you an activity, help you winnow your book thesis. So you take the quiz, it helps focus your book idea 
But then you get this activity to help winnow your idea and make it into more of a book thesis, sharpen the idea. So I would encourage you to do that. So many great resources on the website for you to take advantage to help you embrace your writing life and make some progress as a writer. And that's what we're here for. All right, Rose, we want to thank you again for being with us today and sharing yourself. I know you have a busy day ahead of you, so we're so grateful that you pieced out a portion for us. Well, thanks for having me. It was great and delightful to be with you. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 